to uh, understanding the times. Uh, again, this is like part eight or nine, but we're really still in, in video six where Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And we ended last week uh, right at the end of section B on Freud and human happiness. And so what is, just to kind of recap where we're at. So as we've talked about the, the rise of the modern self, the main thing that we've discovered is that there's been a turn to the inward to find happiness, a turn to the inward to find your identity, a turn to the inward in terms of who you are to be a, as a human being. And so what Freud does is he inherently sexualizes it. And so you no longer say, not, not as a, not, no, this, is, this is beyond Rousseau. So remember, Rousseau was about society's conventions are keeping me down. We need to go back to the basics, kind of the myth of the noble savage, where we don't have all these conventions and we can just kind of live in harmony with nature, that sort of thing. That was the, that was the beginning of romanticism. But it wasn't inherently sexualized yet, right? It was just kind of a, I'm going to commune with nature. Think uh, the transcendentalists in American literature, like Henry David Thoreau and Walden. I'm going to go live in a cabin in the woods and be one with nature. And that's how I commune with God and that sort of thing. That's how the romantics kind of started. Okay? And, we, and we talked how that was influenced. But when it comes to Freud, because we no longer have a God that we're accountable to, we're going to now try, going to try to explain human behavior. And so in Freud's case, he sexualizes human behavior, including childhood. And that gives us this idea that everything is sexualized. So even infants, children are inherently sexualized. And that turn to the inward is a huge deal. So we call that expressive individualism. And so who I am attracted to or how I practice my sexuality is who I am. So instead of it being something that I do, it has become something that I am. That shift is a major shift and would not have been recognizable for most members of Western civilization before, really before Freud um, and people around him. Go so, ahead. So was that when people started saying, I am um, heterosexual instead of I am a human being and I-, I Correct, that happens to practice these things, correct. To practice, so they, they changed the dialogue to where everyone today now actually says, I am this or I am that. Right, it's now an essential attribute. So rather than it, yeah, so, so it actually, just to give you, this will be a little, forgive me, this little bit of classical philosophy 101, but in, in Aristotle, and Aristotle's on this thing, remember for him, the happy life was the virtuous life. That was your blank, right? For somebody like Aristotle, he would distinguish between an accident and an essential property. An accident of something is something that doesn't change the nature of something. So for example, dogs might have different types of hair, right? But they're still dogs. You can cut their hair. They might have different colored eyes, but just because they have different colored eyes doesn't mean they're not a dog. Fair enough. So the hair and the eyes and those sort of things are accidents to what we would call dogness. Fair enough on that? Does that make sense? Yeah. So the ancient Greeks, and really the early church is going to pick this up too, made this distinction between accidents and essentials, or accidents are the nature of the thing, the essence of the thing. So for human beings, we'd say the same thing. Skin color, height, weight, um, eye color, personality, all those sort of things. That's not what determines your humanity. Those are incidental. Those are accidental to who you are as a human being. There are other things that make you a human being. Are you following me on this? And so what happens during Freud is he takes a behavior and makes it an essential nature of you as a human being. So now it's an essential property. Rather than it being an accident, something that you do or a behavior you engage in or an orientation that you have, it has now become something that you are. So what used to be considered an accident or an incident is now who you are essentially as a person. And so that's why when you reset, what, you waited until you were married? That was such an unfulfilled life. If, if you haven't engaged in sexual behavior, you don't, you're not fully human yet. 
see, see how people talk that way? So like things like rigidity and other things are kind of like poo-pooed as something that's uh, you know, that's that's old fashioned that's or that's that's not fulfilling or that's that's like not necessarily being human. You're repressing yourself. You're repressing, you know, you need to go and engage in these things. Otherwise, you're not fully human. The reason people think that way is sexuality has now become an essential part of who we are in the same way that it's almost like living and eating, basically eating and drinking. Sexual activity now and desire is now the equivalent of eating and drinking. Um, Pastor Dinger says this coyly, but I'm going to quote him here a little bit. And I know he won't mind. He's like, no one has ever died from not having sex. That's true. <laughs> People have died from not having food or water or shelter. Yes. Right. And so for some reason, though, the society that we live in has kind of taken that and made it an essential thing of who we are. And the pressure and the way it's you're just surrounded and bombarded by it, it means it's part of our cultural imaginary, even as Christians. Even if we don't necessarily do everything that the Hollywood people do, we are still living in that same culture and we still think that way. Um, and there's enormous pressure in that sense. Um, then it comes from Freud. One of the biggest mistakes that I would say our modern culture has made, and we'll talk more about this when we get to these like critical race theory and all these issues, because we're coming, getting closer to those, is they've taken an, an, an accidental property, in this case, skin color or culture, and made it an essential. You see, you see the mistake being made there too? So instead of, so, so now think about this, you are no longer a human being who happens to be black or a human being who happens to be white or a human being that happens to engage in sexual behavior you are you are a black heterosexual see the, do you see the difference in language that's a change so instead of it's, it's now uh, uh cease from being an accident or an incidental property and become an essential property see so that's that's a huge shift and that's how people think so when you read academics or you listen to people on the news and they talk about like oppression or they talk about those sort of categories. The reason they're talking that way is they say those things are who I am. And if you deny me who I am, you are therefore oppressing me. That's why that language is there is because it's an essential nature of my humanity rather than just something that happens to be accidental or incidental to my humanity. What are you going like, to say? Like skin color has that. It, it is. A, it's it's true, you know, but it's not it doesn't it doesn't make me what I am. Correct. It, and it's just incidental. Right. It's your it's it's different shades of melanin, right? Different different right. categories of melanin. And then there's other things too, like hair follicle size and other things that we talk about yeah. when people talk about ethnicities and things like that. But those are not what make you human. Those are incidental. That's variety within human. It's the same thing with dogs. We don't say that these different types, like for example, if you have a darker German shepherd and a lighter German shepherd, those aren't two races of German shepherds. They're German shepherds. Do you get what I'm saying? Those are incidental properties. Okay, what's happened is, is we've bought into these categories. And actually, uh, what, what, again, I don't want to get too much in the, re in the weeds on this. Um, part of the what people call critical theories is actually not wrong, but the conclusion is wrong. Like How the, do we I, fight I, this? Right, what was that? How do we fight this? We have to reclaim this idea of what it means to be human, right? Where do our identity, well, as Christians, yes. as Christians, it's our identity is found in Christ, not found in these incidental things, right? Our essential nature as human beings is, is grounded in the person and work of Christ and our identity of people that have been created in the image of God and restored to him. It starts there. It does not start with your ethnicity. It doesn't start with your sins. It doesn't start, right? It starts with Christ, okay? It starts from God. There's a universality of humanity in the Christian worldview that we have to reclaim. What's happened is when you uh, focus in on all these categories is you keep dividing people up into further and further smaller and, and, and different groups and, and organizations. We believe in a common humanity, a common 
thing that all human beings share, regardless of where they are at any given circumstance, right? That there's a common humanity. That's that's one thing we need to reclaim. Um, I don't want to get, again, so yeah, how do we do this? No, it's okay. But uh, there's some people kind of coming in late, so this discussion kind of works for those who are kind of coming in late. So we're going to start uh, on letter C, Freud and morality. So the underline that I have, I mean, I backed up a little bit. I, I went to 11, we're about a minute or two um, uh, before we actually kind of took off here, but we're going to be on letter C if you're following along and under the underline, remember again, <laughs> sexuality is no longer what you do, but who you are. That's the underlying thing. Okay. So we're going to continue with how Freud talks about morality and how Freud talks about civilization. And he has that famous book, civilization and its discontents. That's one of his most famous books. And he does kind of, Freud has that kind of, um, uh, personality, the kind of snob that kind of sits in the back and says, I'm going to watch all you lemmings behave and I'm going to kind of describe why you're doing what you're doing. And even though religion might be useful and even though I, I kind of sympathize, I'm still going to smoke my cigar in the corner and kind of tell you why you're that way because I'm better than you. He's kind of got that snobbishness about him. You'll gather that as we go. Even the picture of him, you know, that, that's really famous of him smoking the cigar in his, you know, Viennese suit, just kind of sitting there. He was like that. Okay. He's, you know, I'm, yeah, you guys can believe those Christian things or Jewish things. That's fine. I'm a secular Jew. I have that heritage. But you know what? I don't really believe that stuff. That's kind of a previous thing, but it's useful. So you guys believe it. If it's useful, I'm better. But yeah, go ahead. You see that snobbishness and that's kind of found there. All right, so we're going to start here. This is a quote to kind of create this up, that, that eroticism, sexuality, is the central part of human life. And boy, do we live in that world that Freud created, where that idea, you create your entire culture around some of these things. All right, here we go. Satisfaction. And in fact, provided him with the prototype of all happiness, must have suggested to him that he could, should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life, along the path of sexual relations, and that he should make genital erotism the central point of his life. Notice what Freud, end quote, notice what Freud is saying there. He's saying the erotic, sexual desire and sexual satisfaction become central to human life, basically foundational to who we are, how we think, and how we act. That's quite a contrast to early history where Sex was uh, probably a pleasurable activity, but it was not central to who we considered ourselves to be. It wasn't the meaning of life, one might say, or the meaning of any of us as individuals. But Freud saying, no, no, it is. That's really what drives us all. So the first thing that the first contribution of Paul Freud is he makes that move that says, you know, sex, sexual desire. That determines you. It determines what you aim for in life. It is your identity. Secondly, Freud then reflects upon morality. What, why do we have strong moral codes? What's the basis for them? And he uses, and this is actually one of my favorite uh, passages in Freud because it, it really makes his point uh, rather nicely and in a rather amusing way as well. He's talking about sexual codes, and he says this. Those who contemn, condemn the other sexual practices, he's thinking here about homosexuality, I think, which have no doubt been common among mankind from primeval times as being perversions, are giving away to an unmistakable feeling of disgust, which protects them from accepting sexual aims of this kind. The limits of such disgust are, however, often purely conventional. 
Notice what Freud is saying there. He's saying, you know, we have these moral codes, but when you start to think about them, they're actually pretty conventional. Now, a Christian, of course, would disagree and say, no, our sexual codes reflect the law of God. And Freud would say, no, no. Your sexual codes actually reflect what you find disgusting. And then he goes on to ask whether, is that really a rational thing at all? He says, the limits of such disgust are, however, often purely conventional. A man who will kiss a pretty girl's lips passionately may perhaps be disgusted at the idea of using her toothbrush. Though there are no grounds for supposing that his own oral cavity, for which he feels no disgust, is any cleaner than the girl's. Here then our attention is drawn to the factor of disgust, which interferes with the libidinal overvaluation of the sexual object, but can in turn be overridden by the libido. Disgust seems to be one of the forces which have led to restriction of the sexual aim. End quote. Example Freud uses there. He said, you think about it. Kissing is a pleasurable activity. You enjoy kissing other people. But you wouldn't use their toothbrush because that's disgusting. And yet Freud's making the point that actually it's no more hygienic to kiss somebody, probably far less hygienic than it is to use their toothbrush. So why is it that the one is desirable and the other one is disgusting? Well, he says, the one fulfills sexual desire, the other does not. And then, of course, he's drawing this parallel with sexual codes broadly. He says there's a whole range of sexual activities out there that disgust us. But the basis for that is irrational. There is no transcendent law that says these things are wrong. They're merely, if you like, conventions that society has cultivated. That, of course, then raises the question of why? Why is it cultivated, these particular rules about these particular things. Now, before I answer that question, I just want you to note here the similarity with uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and Oscar Wilde on this point, where ethical claims, claims that we make about right and wrong, are really things that Nietzsche and Wilde would say, no, no, they're not claims about right and wrong. They're claims about taste. You say that's wrong, but what you really mean is you find it distasteful. You say that's right, and what you really mean is you find that tasteful. So with Freud, we get the, the sort of the scientific sledgehammer being brought to bear on traditional moral codes. Okay, just to make sure we're clear on that. So under, under letter C, moral codes are simply invention, not objective or transcendent, that turn to the subjective, that the, the idea of what's right for you is not necessarily what's right for me, that sort of thing. That sort of stuff is very, very much prominent now in Freud. And that's very much the postmodern thing, right? That you, the idea is, is that morality or social codes or moral codes are really just based on society itself, not on some objective transcendent standard. There is no trans transcendent standard in this view. This is why I put down there again, the imminent frame. There's no transcendent order. This is just all there is. The material world is all there is. And since the material world is all there is, that means that you're, what you think are virtues or morals are just what your society has trained you to believe are truly your, your morals. They've, and so remember, he's, he's a psychoanalyst, right? So he's going to say they've trained you through your childhood to feel guilt about certain things and to feel good about other things. Those aren't necessarily right and wrong objectively. It's just how you've been trained since childhood. See where he's going to go with this? And so since you've been trained with those, that, so what you think is moral wrong, what your conscience is telling you, that's not something God programmed you with. That's something that society, families, cultures have programmed you with you with and therefore that's whatever society has found disgusting or helpful or whatever 
that's how they decided what is right and wrong. It's just a matter of taste or convention. And this goes back to the thing I did earlier with you uh, a few weeks ago, the fact-value dichotomy. That things like science or math, now that's a fact, but things like moral, that's just a value that can be fungible depending on your own personal tastes or whatever you think to be true. Which is why in our in our environment, this, you wonder how you see this today in culture with when it comes to things like, say, the political arena. And I'm not trying to politicize it. I'm just showing you the most exa example of this. This is why people want you to be secular in the political arena is because you need to be scientific. And so if you want to advocate for a policy, you can't say, well, God says that. That's 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 just your opinion. Then. But if you say something like. Well, we've done 16 longitudinal studies that have shown that said, oh, okay, now we've got policy. Say the word. You see, you, 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 see, you see the difference? Because you have to, and Freud's somebody that does that. He gives scientific sounding verbiage to kind of justify behavior. So now if you want to go into the public arena and you want to share something, you have to speak in this kind of scientific, pseudo, at least pseudoscientific language. Remember, Freud, nobody practices Freudian psychoanalysis anymore. That's not a thing. But the legacy that he leaves, the way that he does it, that's what's so influential. And in popular culture and in pop psychology, think media, think popular biography, it's still around, right? <laughs> Music, movies, we're going to add just here. Well, what I think that always gets me when we talk about like the sexuality and how it's just about you, one, it justifies like, um, justifies rape because it's about me, it's not about the other person. And then the other thing, there are natural con consequences that happen when you are um, with multiple partners, promiscuous, you know, I'm like, because even if you want to go on a scientific medical background, I mean, we treat tons of people for sexual transmitted diseases all the time. So there has to be a change. There has to be a moral side to this that a free for all has consequences that are not beneficial to the body. And I agree with that. And he's going to, so what Freud's going to say and what he's going to say is he's like, for the, we give up some of these uh, sexual desires or some of these practices for the sake of civilization. And so in other words, what he's going to do, and we're going to get to that next. So it's going to kind of maybe fill in some of these gaps rather than it being because we're accountable to God. What Freud's going to say, remember how I told you he's kind of like the sophisticated guy in the corner thinking he's better than everybody else. He's like, well, I know why everybody's doing this. The real reason they're doing this is they're, they've all repressed their libidos, right? That's what he's going to say. However, because it gives us such beauty and such good civilization, we should repress them anyway. <laughs> so it's kind of an odd, he's like, he like takes the genie out of the bottle and then tries to stuff it back in, but it doesn't work. You get what I'm saying? Like he's, yeah. Yeah. He, he's, he's trying to like give you some reasoning, but when he gives you the reasoning, it therefore justifies all the stuff people like Wilde and Nietzsche were advocating for in the first place. He gives you kind of a scientific jargon explanation for it, but then he tries to put it back in and say, well, civilization is worth it. Okay, what, if for, what, if, what about for the people that don't think it's worth it? Right. So but that's where he's going to go. So he's going to say that you're right. There is a consequence to some of these behaviors. And so we give them up or we restrain them for the cause of civilization. That's what he's going to say. Now, for us as Christians, we would say it, the reason these have bad outcomes is because we're not designed that way. Right. And because God designed our sexualities and designed our bodies and designed our humanity for certain ends, the more we reject those ends, the worse off we're going to become. And we see that in Romans one. Right in Romans one, Paul has a whole series of events, <clears throat> professing themselves to become to be, become wise. Right, themselves to be wise, they became fools, and then after they became fools, God gives them up. So they start worshiping the creation instead of the Creator, and then all these different things start coming down. All these different sins and idolatries and 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 sexual behaviors come out of that giving giving up God. So God gives them up. He says, "All right, have it your way," and we see this mess. 
And so I agree with you that scientifically we can see these things, right? Um, and so as a Christian, I would say, well, that's because the reason is we're damaging ourselves. <laughs> that's why it, it looks bad scientifically. For Freud, he would say, well, because we have scientific evidence, for example, like you said, with multiple partners, there's psychological damage, it justifies amoral behavior, you know, all these different things. We should just restrain it for the cause of civilization. We would say, no, the reason those things are bad is because they're sinful and they're evil and they're rejecting God's design. And so it's odd because at this era of history, early, late 1800s, early 1900s, there's just enough of a Christian worldview around that people like Freud kind of like live off of the legacy of that worldview. But the longer that history unfolds, the less of that legacy exists. And two world wars are going to kind of cause that. People are going to get really disillusioned with civilization as a whole. Remember, he's writing most of this before World War I. Okay, after World War One and World War Two, people are like, wow, civilization doesn't work either. <laughs> right? We've got the Holocaust, and then we have the rise of communism. We have all this stuff. So now maybe nothing's civilized. And then we're going to go back to the Rousseau. Well, then maybe everybody should just live in harmony with nature and, you know, Mother Earth and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. No civilization. Right? So you can see this. There's a kind of this vicious cycle that's going to start kind of spinning here. I'm starting with Freud. I'll go ahead and let him finish because I got something else I want to get to. Somebody can ask, add something? Okay, good. Here we go. That leads me then to my third point, Freud and civilization. Why are these moral codes the way they are? Why do they exist if they're irrational and merely grounded in taste? Well, Freud's idea is this. Society, for its own well-being, cultivates within us over time the idea that these things are absolutes and makes us feel guilty when we transgress them. To quote again from his famous essay, Civilization and Its Discontents. Primitive man, he says, was better off in knowing no restrictions of instinct. To counterbalance this, his prospects of enjoying this happiness for any length of time were very slender. Civilized man has exchanged a portion of his possibilities of happiness for a portion of security. Here Freud gives the ideal man of nature Remember Rousseau's sort of noble savage, a distinctively Freudian sexual identity. As with Rousseau, Freud sort of imagines a world where primitive man knew no restrictions. In this case, there were no sexual restrictions, and he was therefore free to fulfill himself and fulfill his happiness. But Freud is also more pessimistic than Rousseau, for such happiness would surely be short-lived, and it would be risky because it played into the hands of only the most immediately powerful individuals, presumably male individuals, and left the rest of society vulnerable and unsatisfied. In other words, Freud's saying, if you have this noble savage and he's basically a sexual beast, you have total chaos. You have sexually violent chaos. And if society is going to survive, it cannot allow that to happen. So what society does is it engages in this trade-off. It introduces restrictions of sexual desire in order for people to be able to live together. This is achieved by what Freud calls the superego, which is essentially that by which we internalize society's moral codes and which cultivates guilty feelings. Think about it when you're a kid, first time you steal a cookie from the cookie jar. Uh, maybe you didn't know it was wrong and your mum tells you off. Over time, you begin to feel guilty about engaging in behavior like that. So that even when your mom is absent, even when she can't know what you're doing, you don't steal a cookie because you feel guilty. 
You've internalized your mother's moral code relative to the cookie jar, such that it's kind of self-policing at that point. And that's what Freud sees society doing in terms of sexual codes. What it's doing is it's trading off elements of individual freedom, curving, twisting, if you like, individual identity, in order that we can all live together. The energy, the pent-up energy that's caused by this, Freud sees as redirected into other pursuits. Religion, art, culture. If you look at Bernini's statue of the Passion of St. Teresa and look at the expression on St. Teresa's face, it's a deeply sexual expression. And Freud would say that's a good example where Bernini's sexual energy has been redirected into his work of creation and art at that point. And that's where Freud sees religion, even though he's a very anti-religious thinker. He sees religion as performing a useful role. He says this in his essay on religion, The Future of an Illusion. Quotes, Religion has clearly performed great services for human civilization. It has contributed much towards the taming of asocial instincts. What Freud is essentially saying there is religion's nonsense, but it fulfills a useful function. It frightens people into behaving appropriately so that civilization can exist. It's because we are worried about judgment after death, if you like, that we behave ourselves here and now. So Freud is that oddest of thinkers in some ways. He's an imminent frame thinker. He doesn't think there's any transcendence, but he thinks it's useful that people do believe there is some transcendence so that they will behave in appropriate and civilized manner here on earth. But it also points to the Freudian dilemma. If the trade-off for civilization is curbing sexual instincts and sexual desires, then happiness, proper perfect happiness, is by definition impossible. Every human being is going to live at some level as a level of sexual frustration. So that's the reason for the title of his little essay, Civilization and Its Discontents. To have civilization requires that the members of society be discontented because they are forfeiting the possibility of their individual happiness for a corporate stability, which we call culture or civilization. So as we draw our thoughts to a close on Freud then, and I've just barely touched the surface of this man's thinking and his influence, what can we say about Freud's role in the story we are telling so far? Well, in some ways, we can see him as the heir of Rousseau with this thought experiment about what would human beings like, be like in this sort of primeval, uncivilized state. So he's like Rousseau, and he quotes Rousseau in his works. But he presents us with a much darker picture of human nature, where the noble savage is not so noble. The noble savage is a sexual, destructive savage. Secondly, he makes, as I said at the start, Freud makes sex and sexuality the fundamental dimension of what it means to be human. Sex thus becomes identity. The identity politics represented, for example, by the LGBTQ plus movement, that's a relatively recent thing and it's deeply indebted to the way of thinking about culture and humanity that we find articulated so powerfully and clearly in the works of Freud. He also points to the fundamental irrationality of human beings. He makes it clear that you know, many of the things that motivate us, 
Our moral codes, for example, he would say, are not rational. It's desire. It's our dark, irrational desires that really shape who we are. And therefore, he provides this kind of, I would say, pseudo-scientific foundation for seeing moral codes as ultimately disguised taste codes. We say good and evil, we really mean tasteful, distasteful, according to Freud. And that's brought us to a significant juncture in our story, of course, because now we're beginning to understand how this psychologized identity, this expressive individualism, takes on this sexual form in the 20th century. But there is one more step we have to take before we can reflect on contemporary culture, and that is, why does this stuff become so political in the form it does? And that piece of the puzzle is provided by one of Freud's former colleagues, a very strange and rather extreme Marxist thinker, Wilhelm Reich, in the mid-20th century. And it's to Reich's ideas that we will turn in the next lecture. You can see that from Reich to Firestone. He's got Reich, Firestone, uh, Mersus is another one he'll mention. You're, you're going to run into some names that are studied at colleges right now, especially in political thought and Marxist thought. That's what's going to happen. Because remember, we're, we're kind of setting all these stages and I'm giving you all this background. And the reason we're doing this and kind of doing a really kind of detailed study is because if you start at the end, it can get almost overwhelming because it's like there's so much going on. But if you build all these strands together, it starts to kind of make sense. So then it's it's often the enemy you don't understand is the is the scarier one, right? You get what I'm saying? The more we understand about this as the challenges to the Christian worldview, I'm not talking about individuals, we're talking about ideas, right? Individuals are people that Christ died for, right? That sort of thing. But there are bad ideas. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we demolish every stronghold and take every thought captive for Christ. So in other words, we're demolishing strongholds. We're not demolishing people. We're demolishing strongholds. So all these ideas that are kind of coming to fruition here are going to kind of show up in the next session. Um, if you didn't catch that, the blank there, by the way, Freud imagines a noble soul, savage as source in the manner of Rousseau, only he's more evil. Rousseau was optimistic. Remember, Rousseau's writing kind of during the Enlightenment. And so his idea was, well, just this kind of state of nature. Henry David Thoreau and the transcendentalist, Ralph, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, would have also been just very optimistic. Freud's darker about this. He thinks that it would be an inherently sexualized and violent society without civilization. And so we give up some of these sources for happiness. And so humanity's in this constant state of unhappiness or kind of like restlessness because we're never going to truly be satisfied. Now, of course, Augustine would agree with that and say the reason we're unsatisfied is because we're not resting in God, <laughs> right? Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's the real solution. You know, Augustine would go that route. But Freud's going to say this. But the reason I bring this up is if you remember with Marx and Darwin and all these other thinkers, if with Marx, remember, there's two classes of people, okay? This is where this is going to eventually be our pivot to critical theories, okay? With Marx, there's two classes of people. There's the owners, the rulers of the means of production, Right. And then there's the brutalitarian, the workers, the, 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 the people who actually make the stuff. And they never get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. So we need the workers of the world to unite. You've heard that before, workers of the world unite, right? And to cast off their capitalist overlords, okay? And once we cast off our capitalist overlords, we'll have kind of like this communist utopia, right? I'm being, I'm being a little crude about this, but you get the idea. Well, what's going to happen in history, and this is where I'm going to give you a little preview of next week, but I'm also going to show you something else here at the end here is as history unfolds, the communist revolution that Marx thought was inevitable doesn't really happen. It kind of happens in Russia, but it's a very brutal and totalitarian form of it in the Soviet Union. It sort of happens in China, but it's a very Chinese-flavored version. 
Mao has his own kind of take on it. Cuba's tiny island, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? North Korea's got kind of the worship of the ruling Kim family, certainly communism completely. So intellectuals are going to get together and say, why is it that this doesn't happen? How did, where did Marx go wrong? Because obviously it's not just economics, right? Something else is keeping people from casting off their ruling over class. And so we're going to run into a bunch of thinkers next week. And it's not important that you remember all their names. It's what's important is that you remember what they do. They say, well, it's not just capitalism. It's not just this ruling class. It's an entire culture that people are being ruled by. Okay. We call this the hegemon. You're going to run at this time. And so it's white, heterosexual, Christian, cisgendered. You're going to get a whole list of different things. Classic Marxism is mostly about economics. Does that make sense? Right. It's about like who has money, who doesn't, who has the means of production, who doesn't. Now it's going to be about all the levers of power and how it replicates itself in society. And so what Freud does, when Freud sexualizes everything, what you're going to have is these Marxist, neo-Marxist intellectuals, and they're going to say these, the heterosexual family of one man and one woman raising children is stopping people from the revolution. So what we need to do is get rid of the family. You see how this is going to work? We need to get rid of this heteronormative society. Ever heard that term before? Heteronormative? Because that's what perpetuates this kind of oppressive class. So if we can get rid of this heteronormative society, the revolution can happen then. And so they identify correctly that it's not just about economics, that society is built on the family, society is built on religion, society is built on culture. It's right. It's everything from the media to families and everything else. And so what we call this, if you've never heard this before, is the long march through the institutions. We need to take over the robes, pastors, priests, judges. So you see what I'm saying? So it's not enough to just have this kind of thing. We need to now turn to the political. And because Freud has demonstrated for us, even if nobody agrees with Freud anymore in terms of psychologists, Freud has demonstrated that human beings are inherently sexual, right? And so now, how, so now let's look at society and see how their sexuality is repressed. And if we can show them that the people in charge are oppressing them, they're going to be more likely to rise up and get rid of those ruling people in power. So it becomes inherently political. This is why we can't avoid politics. It seems odd, but in the last 10 years, I think you've noticed this, almost everybody in here has noticed this. In the last 10 years, starting about 2010 or 11, everything has become political. There's a reason for that. Okay, there's a reason for that. Okay, this is not like this is not happening in a vacuum. Because even in the 1970s and 80s, when some of these theories were already kind of going around, it was mostly just kind of academic tricks. Or it was professors acting kind of like Freud. They were acting better than everybody else. You know what I'm saying? Or they were just kind of talking to students and trying to create radical students, which has been going on since forever. Okay, that's that's not what's new. What's new is how it's been weaponized politically in the last 10 to 20 years. And so that's what's going to what he's going to do next week is going to shift to that. Why does this become so political? It's because these Marxist ideas of oppressor and oppressed are going to be weaponized in almost all areas of life. So not just on sexuality also, but also on gender, right? So we don't just, it's on race, on uh, disability, on immigration status, on, you see where this is gonna go? All these different things, that's where we're gonna get the terms like intersectionality and all this stuff. It starts here. Because now it's not just about economics and class warfare now. Now it's about every single aspect of your existence. 
with sexuality and gender and those things being the foundational piece of that. Okay, so we're, we're at that point now. This is, gonna, this is all going to come together. He's going to draw it together in his last couple sessions, and then I'm going to draw some extra stuff for you, and then, then we're back to Rochelle. How do we respond to this, right? Because what the Christian worldview on this, you're going to find on this, we are incredibly, just by being faithful, just by being faithful, we are radically countercultural. I mean, it's not, I mean, this is not like, we don't even, we don't have to try to be countercultural. We are countercultural just by existing, okay? Just by, be, if you just take the, take out the Holy Scriptures and try to live out the Holy Scriptures, you don't need to change your music style in church. You will already be, already be radically countercultural. You know what I'm saying? You are already, I, I joke with pastor because I like to play with words because I'm me. I'll say, hey, because, you know, it's like, well, we want to do something relevant. And I was like, well, if, I was like, isn't it? better if we're irrelevant to the current culture he's like okay that's a nasty word maybe a different <laughs> you know and i i mess with him all the time we talk we we, we we love each other it's great he's like a mentor for me and so it's awesome we have really great conversations and it's, it's awesome um but you get the point that i'm making is the church is always searching for relevance when instead at the current moment being irrelevant would actually be a good thing if you catch what i'm saying by that right if anything just being faithful is to be relevant in a different way because we're providing an alternative and so i again just some things to just think about in terms of countercultural um, thought, because you will have to be countercultural, and it is lonely. You will be considered weird if you live this stuff out. People are going to think you're kind of an oddity, a kind of an odd duck. You're going to like, why in the world are those two people, this this couple, they're not living together? Why? <laughs> Don't they want to figure out if it works first? See, right? I mean, I mean, just even that is stuff that's countercultural. Well, they're married for so long. Yeah, yeah. And so, like my wife and I, we lived in separate apartments. Okay, in Woodbridge. And I can't tell you how many times when I was, I was working at an online campus, it was called American Intercontinental University, online school. Okay, it had like a bunch of thousand students, 2007, 2008, that range. My wife and I were living in separate apartments. Like, why, why wouldn't you just live together? You can save the money and then you can find out if you're compatible. And I was like, no, that's not how this works. You know, <laughs> but I had this, I mean, I, 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 I had that conversation dozens of times with different coworkers and colleagues and people that I got to know. They just could not understand. There was like one other, there was like two other couples that were also my age that were also practicing what we would call the biblical model of waiting until marriage. And they were both Christian couples. One was working. One was training to become part of campus crusade or crew. And then the other one was like a really traditional Catholic. And they have like eight kids now. (laughs) You know what I'm saying though? I mean, that was kind of like, so I mean, that was it. There was like three of us and we just kind of hung out because we were like, and this is, you know, 15 years ago or so. And we were already kind of the, definitely the minority at that point. So again, it'll be countercultural. So before I before I show you something else, I want to kind of introduce how some of the verbiage and stuff with my last video. Do we have comments, questions about this? Is this is this helping this make sense? Hopefully. Since the blank was living together. Oh, yeah, learning to live together. So society introduces restrictions in order for people to live together. It's super ego. I forgot to mention this. Cartoons jumped all over this because the idea of having the id and the super ego. Right. The like demon version of yourself and the angel version of yourself, like talking to you. That's very Freudian. So cartoons like think like Tom and Jerry and Bugs Bunny and all those different things kind of adapted that. Now, it's not used in Freudian terms. It's just a way to show that people have a conscience and they're kind of reasoning through things. But that idea that you have an id and a superego, that's that's very Freudian. That comes from him. What what was that? Just the ice block sits in the ocean and there's a little bit of ice for one and then oh yeah yep oh yeah we're we live with this imagery again not in professional psychology but in pop culture this is very again very much pop culture and even if we don't use his analysis 
the influence again that everything is sexualized is very, very much with us right now. Okay, so to end on this, what I want to do, because again, next week is about uh, is about all these different kind of figures that kind of politicize things. I want to just leave you with a way just to kind of help you think about how uh, people today talk about things like sex and gender and things like that, because this is going to be helpful for you because you might find yourself, if you're like me, you find yourself bewildered going, okay, there's gender expression, gender identity, sexual orientation, sex, what is, what's going on? I'm going to give you a little bit of a, what would you say on this? We're going to end on this. And then I got to head over because I'm worship assisting at this leader service as well. So I want to end on this just to give you an idea. And again, I, I highly commend this uh, YouTube channel. It's called What Would You Say? Um, and so this is from the Colson Center. And you can see this whole, you've got all these titles, right? Is gay genetic? Is sex assigned at birth? Is transgenderism logical? I mean, they're going through all of these, okay? But the one I want to show you is how do they view these things? Because this is a, the result of Freud. Many people are confused today about sex and gender. If you were in a conversation about these very tough topics, what would you say? Before we can have a constructive conversation about the brave new world of sex and gender, it's important to understand the current thinking about sex and gender. Hopefully, this will give you a head start. Many gender theorists have created separate categories for sex, gender identity, and gender expression. Sex, some say, is assigned at birth by the doctor. Though our sex is connected to our bodily anatomy, they claim that disorders of sexual development are actually different sexes. Claiming sex is assigned rather than acknowledged at birth allows for the possibility that sex can be reassigned later. Now, whether sex needed to be reassigned depended on gender identity, the second category. Gender identity, we are told, is our internal sense of who we are. Do I feel like I'm a man, a woman, neither, or both? Gender is a state of mind and on a spectrum. In other words, gender is not a binary choice between male or female. Someone may, for example, feel 70% female and 30% male. The final category to understand is gender expression. This is the way someone chooses to express their sense of gender identity. Clothes, haircut, and mannerisms can all be part of gender expression. Are you assertive and tough, or passive and emotional? Do you like sports, knitting, or painting your nails? All of these, they would say, are forms of gender expression. Now, of these three categories, gender identity is most important. This means the way you feel about who you are is more important than your biology. And because feelings change, they say, gender is fluid, not fixed. And from their perspective, it would be completely appropriate for the same person to feel male, female, then neither, then both, all in the span of a few years, weeks, or even days. While this framework sounds strange to many of us, there is a point you must understand. Gender theorists assure people that they are not obligated to behave in one specific way because of their anatomy. With this, we can find some agreement. God makes each one of us uniquely, and social norms for being male or female are not always helpful or healthy. But transgender theorists go beyond the idea that we are all unique and say, Someone with a penis can be a girl and someone with a vagina can be a boy. This is both unnecessary and illogical. It's unnecessary because it's 
perfectly reasonable to believe that male and female are fixed biological categories and also reject the idea that all men and all women are required to act in one specific way. Transgender theory is illogical because once you remove a clear definition of male and female, how can you possibly know what it means to be transgender? I can't know on the inside if I'm a man if there is no definition of what a man is. Think of it this way. If your compass can't tell you which direction is north, it won't be able to tell you which direction is east, west, or south either. In the same way, if male and female are undefined categories, saying, I'm born a man, but I know I'm a woman, is illogical. It's like saying, I don't know which direction is north, but I know I'm going south. In both cases, the best response to someone struggling with who they are is to help the person get oriented. Let's review. Instead of simply seeing sex as male and female defined by our anatomy, transgender theorists have identified three categories, sex, gender identity, and gender expression. Gender identity matters most and is determined exclusively by an individual's internal sense of themselves. Our job is to be kind and to ask good questions. If there is no definition of woman, how can someone know they are one? While great questions asked graciously may not bring clarity to a person who is currently confused, it can help stop the confusion from spreading. If you like this, all right, I did like that. The, the, the logic of it's like, how can you, how can you know what it means to be a woman if you don't know what a woman is? Right. So there's, but that's the whole point of kind of this postmodern thought is that there is no transcendent source of meaning, right? We live in a world of the eminent frame. And so you determine your own meaning. It doesn't have to be logical as long as it's true for you. It doesn't have to fulfill. You see what I'm saying? Or logic, if you point some of this out, you'll have some that will say, well, logic itself is oppressive. It's a tool used by people in charge to keep people like me down. Logic itself is a tool of oppression to keep the people in charge. And so that's, you know, we would say God created logic. You see the difference there? So, I mean, there's, that's, that's where we're going to have these worldview conflicts. But I like that one of the tactics, and there's a book out there called Tactics um, that talks about this. One of the things that you have to ask, one of the ways you want a solution, and we got to go here in just a second, is asking questions. One of the best things you can do is ask, and he said, and you notice, ask graciously. Don't do it like a ha-ha, I gotcha thing, right? You still want to love the individual. That's what we're commanded to do by Christ, right? But you do want to ask some of those good questions. You know, how's that working out for you? <laughs> or it's like, hey, I, I know that I'm a woman, even though I'm expressing myself as a man or whatever. It's like, okay, so, so what is a woman? Define that for me. You know, can you help me, can, can you help me know what that is, you know? And then, you know, it's kind of funny because like, well, I, I'm against gender stereotypes. And then when they start explaining it, they list a bunch of stereotypes and say, well, isn't that kind of inconsistent? How's that work? Can you help me, try, help me understand? You know, that's another question you can ask. Help me understand. Because right now I'm not quite, I'm not seeing this eye to eye. Help me understand. Or what do you mean by that? That's another great question to ask. What do you mean by that? That's one of the tactics to use. Because often when people talk out loud, because they're created in the image of God, and we are inherently programmed to function in this universe, they'll realize some of these contradictions on their own. Now, some will admit them. Some will say, well, it's a contradiction, but I'm just going to live there anyways because I'm happy when they're really not. Um, but some will actually point that out and say, you know, I've never thought of it that way before. And that's the goal. And then, of course, the ultimate goal is to win them for Christ, right? And let the Holy Spirit do his work and, and work on that individual. So you're, you're a tool in that sense, right? You're a tool for God doing his work because only the Holy Spirit and only God can do this. But when we believe in a God where nothing is impossible, 
God who spoke the single universe, you know, in a single sentence can speak the entire universe into existence. He can fix this, right? No individual is too far gone for him. And so we need to remind ourselves of this. It'd be easy to just kind of give up on the culture and just kind of build castles, right? Just kind of say, all right, you guys destroy yourselves. And when you're ready, we can have a talk, right? But we're alive at this moment for a reason. And so if God made you alive at this moment for a reason, what are you going to do about it, right? What are we doing for heaven's sake? And so I have to remind myself of that because it'd be really easy for me to just kind of button down the hatches and just kind of say, you know what? Let's let everybody kind of set themselves on fire. And then when the damage is done, then we can kind of rebuild. From a kingdom of the left standpoint, that kind of makes sense, right? Kind of the political environment. But in the kingdom of the right, when we're talking about the salvation of souls, that makes no sense, right? The idea is we're trying to uh, win people for Christ. And that, of course, comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. So any comments, questions? Does that help, though, by the way, kind of seeing how people thought? I think that's helpful because you'll often hear these different terms being bandied about. But the reason this stuff happens, remember, Freud says it's all about, right, everything's sexualized and everything's involving sex and gender and expression and identity and all these different things. And so now that we're in the 21st century and now we're in 2021, these are the terms that have basically started to show up. So we're not only as the sexual behavior, but even your anatomy isn't as important as how you feel about yourself. And if you're not allowed to feel about yourself a certain way, society is inherently oppressive on you. And so, again, something that we'll be, be talking about and, uh, and, and parsing and working on these next couple of weeks here in, in the season of Advent. Comments, questions before I go over and help Chris again at this next uh, service? All right. So next week, there may I, I'm not clear on the schedule. You may have a guest. Chris might be coming over next week. Um, I have to go. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure. But Pastor Dinger's not here, so I can't confirm that with him. Um, that I'm supposed to go up to Rigby next week because they're in that vacancy thing and we're rotating every six weeks. Um, but if so, if I'm not here, um, it'll be a guest uh, that comes in and leads class um, as far as that goes. But if I am here, then I'll be here. But there, as far as I know, class is happening. A lot of you I emailed last time when I was on vacation. Um, but if I need to do that again, I'll do that again if that happens. Okay. Uh, anything else? All right, let's do the blessing on ourselves and then I'll just kind of book you over. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. Amen.